Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Dr. Yael Dandi, who is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Illinois Medical Center. He treats patients with impaired immunities, such as recipients of transplants or people receiving other immunosuppressive treatments. He also specializes in patients who have infections related to travel in India. He is the head of infectious disease and public health services at SHARE India, which stands for Society for Health Allied Research and Education in India, SHARE India. And so with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Yaldandi. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. So I'm delighted to talk to you. I appreciate that. Pleasure is all ours. Can you tell the audience what SHARE India is and in broad terms, the impact it has had on the patients who benefited from the program? So SHARE India is a not-for-profit society that was founded in 1986 in India. And basically it was a group of people in the United States, most of us were physicians, some of them not. Uh, for example, Dr. Raj Reddy and Dr. C.R. Rao, who are actually data scientists, as Dr. C.R. Rao is a statistician, Dr. Raj Reddy is the former head of robotics at Carnegie Mellon. So all of these people, in particular, Dr. P.S. Reddy is a cardiologist at the University of Pittsburgh. We all got together and uh, developed this idea that we would all create an institution in India devoted to health, but in particular, promoting health sciences research to improve the health of people in India. So that's how Share India was born. And uh, one of the first things that we focused on is trying to use innovation to address population health, particularly focusing on antenatal care and immunizations, because at that time in the early 90s, when we started, the, the big problems that were perceived was the extraordinarily high mortality due to infectious diseases, and also the problem of managing the population and maternal and child health because of excessive numbers of pregnancies and childbirth. So that's where we started. But over the decades, uh, we've grown into an organization that uh, we are now almost 500 odd people strong. Uh, and uh, a lot of us are clinicians, uh, public health scientists, laboratory scientists, data scientists. We have lots of collaborations. Uh, I, for example, I'm also a faculty at the Public Health Foundation of India and also faculty at the Global Health Center at the University of Illinois in Chicago. So we've all uh, got together to do a whole host of different things in population health and creating uh, devices. For example, we're working on a prosthetic limb. We are working on a um, ventricular assist device where oxygenator with collaborations with multiple engineering schools. A large part of my work in particular is funded by the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And this really started off in 2005 after we'd been doing a lot of work addressing the HIV pandemic in India, starting in the late 90s and early 2000, where we discovered to our horror that HIV was not confined to the high-risk groups, but had 
penetrated the general population. We were amongst the first people to report that. And in collaborations with Johns Hopkins had done a very large study in semi-rural India, which is where our institute is located, to show that you know, in the general population, in the reproductive age group, uh, we had almost 1% of the people infected with HIV, which uh, came as a revelation. And uh, this is the population that we have adopted around uh, our institution, roughly around 40 villages with a total population of 50,000. We have every man, woman, and child in our database, all geocoded. And this is a cohort uh, on which uh, we work with in a participatory manner. We work with them very, very closely and we follow people longitudinally. So we have data, for example, on what we call the longitudinal Indian uh, life health study, where we follow people right from the time a marriage results in a conception to the child being born and then following the child year after year. So we have data including uh, all sorts of socioeconomic parameters on all of these children for the last seven, eight years. But we also have biological specimens in our biodepository. Specifically with uh, the United States Centers for Disease Control, what we have focused on is HIV, providing technical support to the National AIDS Control Organization and addressing the HIV pandemic. So we, we focus on laboratory systems, particularly quality management systems and diagnostic testing and viral load in particular. We also focus on clinical care and support and high prevalence areas of India, particularly in South India and Northeast India. We also work a lot on tuberculosis. So we have several award-winning programs there that we did in the slums of Mumbai, which is uh, you know, uh, one of the biggest slums in Mumbai and in India particularly. The Dharavi. Yeah, Dharavi area. And uh, so, you know, so, so Share India really, if you think about what our core competency is, it really is building the capacity of people to do a better job in healthcare. We, our core philosophy is that we want to ensure that through our work, we are providing people with the ability to have a purposeful life of autonomy and dignity. It's interesting you mentioned building capacity to do better because capacity often requires trust and understanding. And right. for many who are interested in helping in underserved areas of the world, particularly in India, there is a trust factor. There's a cultural factor, which may be even more pronounced when dealing with stigmatized conditions like HIV and AIDS, like tuberculosis, how do you overcome the stigma gap in order to provide effective medical care? So I'm a great fan of, uh, uh, you know, Albert Hirschman and also Aaron Antonowski's uh, concepts of salutogenesis uh, and also the Mike Koch model. And basically, if you bring all of these different kinds of ideas together, what you realize is to get to improving people's health and having the ability to be trusted by them, 
you actually have to invest a lot of time and energy in a partnership. So one of the things that I think is fundamentally wrong with a lot of medical care, I would not call it healthcare, medical care is it's so transactional and it is so condescending. You know, I'm the benefactor, you're the beneficiary kind of thing. And that slides very easily into a very mercenary, fragmented kind of care where people are trying to make money. And even when people are not trying to make money, there is this lopsided emphasis on quote-unquote efficiency where, you know, a lot of investment that is really needed to improve people's lives is cut out in the name of efficiency. So it's almost like people focus on knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. So what we have done primarily is focus a lot on you know, a participatory approach, which means that we are a partnership. You know, we and everybody that we work with, we are equals. They cannot be a power differential. And as you know, the root cause of a power differential is a knowledge gap. So we work assiduously to try and mitigate that knowledge gap. And we partner with people. Most importantly, there is respect for each other. We try and learn as much as we can from as many people as possible. In fact, let me tell you that when we first did our 5,500 subject study in the early 2000s, in and around the area of our institution, the only reason we were able to go and touch such a sensitive area as HIV and sexuality was because of the long-standing relationship that we had in the community where we had worked for antenatal care and immunization. So there was a trust factor that had already been built in. And that's what that relationship of trust, that longitudinal relationship is what we could build on and say, you know, we want to partner with you and learn from you and see what it is that we have to do in order to help improve people's lives. And what can we learn from here that we can take to other parts of the world? It seems that what you have learned and the insights gleaned are almost universal principles. You talk about the lopsided emphasis on efficiency, a participatory approach to overcoming this knowledge gap. Often those principles can apply to patients domestically in the United States. Do you see, do you see more, certainly, do you see more similarities or differences along cultural lines when you're trying to assess those soft skills in treating patients? And this is a, a very interesting question because this is one of the things that I get pushback a lot from. And I first started coming to India and I said, you know, we, we need to do this, that, and the other. And the, the pushback that I got is, no, 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 you don't understand. This is India. We're different here. You know, we can't afford this. And, um, you know, so I very often, a lot of my friends, you know, they started telling me about this new species that they had discovered. It's called the American migratory bird. You know, it flies in, it squawks a lot. It eats the best food around, shits all over the place, squawks a lot, and then mm -hmm. flies away. <laughs> so then I, you know, and I said, look, uh, you know, I was born in India. I went to medical school in India. Thank you very much. And uh, trust me, 
people all over the world have 46 chromosomes, give or take a couple. And we know from all sorts of studies, genetic studies, that within a community of quote unquote, the same kind of people, however you define it, whether you call it a race or color or whatever you want to call it, there is more heterogeneity than there is across groups of people. So this notion that we are different and all of these things are, make us fundamentally different, I think is fallacious. What I see is that there are nuances. And those are the kinds of nuances that apply to Chicago as well as they apply to Hyderabad. Look, you know, in and around the University of Illinois is what I call the fourth world. There are pockets in and around Chicago where the infant mortality is worse than Bangladesh. Mm. There are pockets in and around Chicago where even today the one, number one cause of poor health in young women of African-American ancestry happens to be HIV. So give me a break. So yeah. I don't think that there's all of that you know, great difference. I think that it is what we fall, tempt, you know, we are tempted to falling into all of these very, you know, convenient cliches that this is different and that is different. I don't think so. I think they are fundamentally caring is just as important in the United States as it is in India. And I take care of transplant patients at the University of Illinois. These are very complex patients, you know, and they have very uh, significant requirements, particularly in terms of emotional support. And how is that any different from anybody that I see in India? It's the same. I would like to say that, you know, I, I hope that we change the way we are training healthcare professionals. I think that the problem, I think, is this paradigm of pathogenesis where, you know, we are taught the basics, you know, the structure, the anatomy, the physiology, and the biochemistry. And then we are taught pathology and pathogenesis. And then we say, okay, if you understand the pathogenic mechanism, you, you know how to fix it. That's analogous to taking a malfunctioning machine and saying, okay, this is the part that's defective and I'm going to replace it. I think that's that's completely bizarre. Yeah, and that's why I like Ermantnarsky's salutogenesis better, where I'm, you know, I'm trying to think that, look, if I want to focus on helping somebody with their health, what I really, really need to focus on is making sure that that person has the ability to meet the demands of life. And that means that there is integrating the inborn attributes, the acquired attributes with the external environment, social, political, every which way. It's interesting you mention it in this context because it's less about the traditional clinical metrics of improved quality of care and more about the subjective metrics of effective communication and the ability to empower the patient to make decisions. But in but this... I, I, I think the, you know when you talk about metrics, this is the other thing that I always get, you know, a little concerned about because mm -hmm. I ask people, well, what are you doing? What are you going to measure? What are the metrics? 
And then people come up with this beautiful log frames and theory of change. And if I do this, this is going to happen. And I said, look, uh, you know, firstly, uh, who designed and who decided or who determined the outcome, number one? And who determined the exact methodology or the metrics that you are going to use? I mean, that, that's completely counter to the participatory approach where, you know, I, I'm going to say that, look, I, I'm not going to pretend or, you know, be arrogant enough to think that I know the answer. I don't. Maybe nobody does. You know, something is going to emerge as long as we, all of us, collectively had decided that we will work together with a shared vision to improving something. And we all agree about what those metrics mean and how they are to be implemented. I think we are much better off. And then on top of it, you know, it can't be that I am going to do this and I'm going to give myself a defined period of time and, uh, you know, presto, uh, outcomes a result. That doesn't work in real life. You constantly have to keep evaluating what you're doing, what's coming out. Is that the right way to go about it? Do we need to change something? And this, is a, this requires a much greater investment in time, patience, and a participatory effort. It's interesting you mentioned that. And I think the most salient point is when you said, all agree about what those metrics mean. There's an undeniable push towards quantifying medicine, quantifying healthcare, indeed in share India's early phases, in order to grow to what it is now, there had to be some tangible metrics of success. So it's inescapable that quantification of healthcare, but you feel that it should be contextualized relative to more subjective and intangible metrics. At an individual patient level, what does that mean? How does that change communication on an individual patient to physician level? The first thing I'd like to do, now let's talk about two different areas, all right? One is, you know, uh, the, the initial comment that you made about, you know, what does Share India's success look like and what, what did we do that was different? And of course, you know, any organization, one of the first imperatives is that you have an infrastructure and you have the ability to fund it and you have the ability to have some funding to go forward one way or the other. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's OK. I, I think that in some ways I would suggest to you that that is putting the cart in front of the horse. Now, when it comes to an individual patient, I always like to think that you know, each individual patient for me is essentially a clinical trial with an N of one, which means that every single intervention I am monitoring for impact and outcomes. You know, I can't tell my patient that, look, uh, I, in my infinite wisdom, know exactly what's wrong with you. And here are three pills that you must be taking. And if you haven't gotten better, it means that you didn't take the pills properly, which is the usual attitude that I see with people. So the first thing that we sit down and do is I try and understand what it is that my patient wants out of the entire interaction. I need to try and understand what are the demands of life that my patient has to cope with. So again, going back to Aaron Antonovsky's concepts, you know, the sense of coherence demands that first we have comprehension, 
which means that I and my patient must build a shared vision. Second, that our interaction must lead to a capacity for coping with whatever it is that they need to cope with. And thirdly, this comprehension and capacity leads to that capability to have a purposeful life with autonomy and dignity. Now, this very often means that I invest not only in my patient, but I invest in my patient's support structure, whether that's his family or her family or spouse or significant other, whatever it is, their friends. I have to understand what the support structure looks like. And if I am to be effective, then I must make a difference for the better. Do you feel that in India, it's easier to involve the network around a patient compared to other countries, let's say in the United States, where there may not be that network infrastructure, or you feel that if done effectively, the same network-based infrastructure should exist regardless of where the patients are? No, I think that, that this is a universal phenomenon, all right? And, and I think that one of the things that I would say is a note of caution is don't automatically make the assumption that the family that you interface with, with the patient necessarily has a patient's best interest at heart. Wow. I have seen the unfortunate condition where, you know, I'm telling a patient's family that, look, we've reached the end of the road. There is no purposeful life or meaningful life for this patient that I can provide. Uh, this person, uh, you know, whatever medical intervention we put in is not only futile, but probably is, uh, you know, quite painful and therefore not in the best interest of that patient welfare. And what I found is that that family member didn't care two hoops about whether it was causing pain or not. He wanted or she wanted that person alive so that they could collect some you know, pension or some benefits, the social security or whatever it is. So I think that, that you know, when, when, as a healthcare professional, we have that added burden as to when we are making a determination of beneficence is to be realistic and say, all right, you know, is this really a support structure or is this merely a parasitic interaction that we are watching, right? So that, in that sense, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that is incumbent on us healthcare professionals is not to fall victim to excessive naivety. Yeah, certainly with the unique patient-physician encounter, you don't see the full sense of how a patient and their family are portraying themselves. With Share India, you guys have what's called an outreach warrior program. Does that provide the additional perspective, the additional lens to help overcome that provider naivety? To a certain extent, it, you know, it has the potential. I'm not sure that I can honestly state that that has been accomplished to the degree that I would like. Yeah, because I, I think that this is a fairly complex area where, you know, we, we still are trying to grapple with understanding how to use a science of social capital building in health, in the context of health. You know, where is the bonding, where's the bridging, where are the linkages? 
And that, that is an area that a lot more work needs to be done. We're just beginning to understand you know, how to do that objectively. Do you feel the way we study medicine and the way we conduct clinical research is in many ways preventing the understanding of social capital building? I almost feel as though we have to shift how we analyze the experience of healthcare in order to move in that direction. I absolutely agree with you. You know, uh, uh, I think that one of the things that's been lacking in the training of health professionals, and I don't care whether they're doctors or nurses or emergency responders or even the police or anybody else, is, you know, sitting down and saying, okay, now let us try and understand what really is happening. And let us firstly, make a commitment to a responsibility. That responsibility is that we have to, through all of our efforts, ensure benevolence, right? So, and that means that a lot of the, you know, ideology that we form is simply flawed. For example, you know, in medical school, we were taught that you should not become emotionally involved with the patient. You must retain objectivity and so on and so forth. Well, I, I'm not sure that I would completely buy that. I think that that leads to depersonalization of a patient as an object. Again, going back to the analogy of a machine that needs to be fixed. So I think that that needs to change. I think that we need to get back to thinking about, you know, what is personal responsibility? And it, why on earth do you want to become a healthcare professional if you are not willing to commit to a personal responsibility for benevolence? It's interesting you mentioned that. Commitment to responsibility, ensuring benevolence, shifts away from the machinations of data-driven healthcare. Often, what we see is stigma, particularly during the pandemic, the role of stigma in enforcing those types of stereotypical visions. Given your perspective in infectious disease with the HIV AIDS epidemic in the United States and in India, and now with everything we've seen in the pandemic, is stigma a natural outgrowth of how we think about healthcare, or is there something different to it? Well, I think, uh, you know, I can't pretend to be a great expert on stigma. So I, I will tell you that my personal perspective on stigmatization is, you know, uh, again, it's a learned attribute. I, I don't think that this is something that we are born with or is present in children. It is, again, uh, allowing ourselves to, you know, become groups where we have an identity, right? And then it's us versus them. They look different from us, right? I mean, I think that if you look at, let's, let's take the attitude towards the poor, for example, you know, and very often you will find people who say, well, you know, the poor are poor because it's their fault. They don't want to work hard enough. They're lazy, whatever, right? So I think that, this is sort of blaming the victim kind of a culture. Yeah. And if I, but fundamentally, fundamentally, I think it's about understanding a commitment to responsibility. So I, I like to say that 
you know, firstly, uh, to think that you have to be wealthy and powerful to be benevolent is sheer nonsense. So that's why I like to keep telling people that you know, power is an illusion, authority is a delusion, responsibility is reality. Yeah. When I started my work as a young person, you know, I was a resident in medicine and, you know, um, fortunately, I um, was quite comfortable because by the time I became a resident, resident stipends were reasonable, mm. would have a comfortable life and you didn't have a lot of extra money. But, uh, and everybody said, well, you have this dream of going back to India and doing this, that and the other. Tell me how much money do you have and how much power do you have? And I said, I don't have any money. I don't have any power. And um, thanks to my principles, I've been blessed with poverty. And now I'm too old to give up either my principles or my poverty. So, <laughs> but I think there's a definite pathway. And this is the thing that I like to tell people. If nothing else, if you feel responsible or benevolence, if nothing else, how is it so difficult for you to bear witness? Go out and see what there is in the world. See what's happening. And if you can learn to bear witness objectively, truthfully, and honestly, then you will see what there is that you can do. And again, like Albert Hirschman, I, I believe in possibilism, which is that you can make a difference if you want to. Just don't try to drastically re-engineer the whole world, it's not gonna work. If you try to change just a little bit of something that you think you can, and you are humble about it, and you have not you know, painted yourself into a corner by a predetermination of the outcome, and you are focusing more on your own efforts, it will work. It may take a long time, and what emerges may be completely different from what you thought it would be. But what's wrong with that? Uh, completely wise words. It's uh, very fortunate to see the success of Share India come out of the vision that you have led it through. What I would like, Dr. Yaldani, in the uh, last few minutes here is for you to provide some advice for the young medical student the young resident, or just a young healthcare policy student who wants to make a change and looks at Share India, looks at you and sees something that's almost impossible to achieve. What were your thoughts in those early days, in those early years, as you were struggling to make Share India what it is today? Well, I, I think that in the early days, like I said, <laughs> I, 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 I was... Uh, I, I naive, uh, young, you know, idealistic person. And um, I really didn't care about whether I would become rich and famous or anything like that. I actually didn't even know enough that I should care about whether my efforts would succeed. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, like I said, you know, I was, I was having a good time, actually. Mm. So, you know, so I would, my young friends who are embarking on a life, you know, I would tell them, look, the most tragic thing that you will ever do or will happen to you 
is that you will get into a situation where you're making oodles of money and you can do this, that, and the other with that money. But every morning you wake up and say, shit, I don't want to go to work today. Mm. This is <laughs> so I, the first thing I tell people is make sure whatever on earth that you want to do is something that you're going to really, really, really enjoy. Because if you do, you're going to be so good at it that yeah. you're going to be a million times better than anybody else. And for the best, there is no competition. Mm. Yeah. So do that. And the second thing that I like to tell my young friends is, you know, uh, it, it, you have the good fortune of getting an education. Somebody's paying for it. Wonderful. Or if you are working hard and putting away some money and taking all sorts of loans to pay for it, sure, that's you know not all that wonderful. It's a little tough. But please learn. Don't just create a avenue of quote-unquote career growth by obtaining some credentials. You know, learn a skill. Learn something that makes you so valuable that people will chase you to the ends of earth. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Yaldani. Thank you for your advice and thank you for sharing the success of Share India. For those who are interested in learning more about Share India, you can go to the website thesharendia.com org.org and learn more about Dr. Yaldani's work and Share India as a whole. And with that, Dr. Yaldani, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this opportunity.